Hi guys, this is Matthew. Hope you're doing well. I've been doing 50 Tastes of Grey. I've been recording for about one year. So all of 23 I was recording and just now starting to put it up on the various different networks and my website, lovelife.com. That's very near and personal to me. I want to talk a little bit about happiness and see if I can't help a few of you out there because we all go through the same thing in life. Let's just call it happiness support for the moment. I put myself onto a podcast recently as a guest and I assumed the identity of a guy who can help others. (laughs) Probably silly, but maybe, maybe, maybe slightly helpful. So here's what I have to say about happiness. You know, the great aspects of diet, nutrition, exercise, and sleep, the holy grail, is that they don't actually bring us happiness, but they do lower unhappiness. Most people think that unhappiness is the opposite of happiness, but it's not. They're actually processed in different hemispheres of our brain. Happiness on one side, unhappiness on the other. The right side of our brain processes negative basic emotions. And the way that we know this is because the left side of our face is controlled by the right side of our brain. It's kind of counterintuitive when you think about it. And this is more active when we're feeling negative emotions. They can see this through tests and various different kinds of imaging sources and so on. So my guess is that, you know, we've all got some unhappiness in our lives. We all do. Every single one of us. Some of us have higher negative feeling levels than others. If you've got that and you want some relief, that's what's going to bring it. It might not make you happier. It's not the secret of happiness, but it sure is good for having less unhappiness. Striving for less unhappiness, in a way, counterintuitively, increases your happiness quotient. Interesting, right? One of the questions I got in a DM from one of the listeners on the show, does anyone ever experience depression or uncertainty after achieving a goal? Well, I think the short answer is yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, they do. This is the real riddle of happiness. The satisfaction dilemma, in a nutshell, is, yeah, if I get that watch, I'm going to love it forever. Boy, I've always wanted that Rolex. I've always wanted, uh, you know, that Porsche. If I can get that house, if I can get that relationship with all that money, if I can get that job, oh boy, fill in the blank. It's going to be so great when I get that. And it will be for one minute. Now, all that stuff is tied into neurophysiology. It's the same thing as what I was talking about a moment ago about having less unhappiness will lead to higher quotient levels of happiness where it'll feel like that. So the neurophysiology behind this is that there's a part of our brain that releases dopamine. Dopamine is what you want and what you work for and what you are going to get. Dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. It's produced in several areas of our brain, but the most important area is a certain part of the area located deep in the brain. It's it's responsible for sending dopamine signals to the other parts of the brain. So this is what's happening to you. When you do something enjoyable, such as eating a delicious meal, and that's something I know a lot about, listening to music, spending time with loved ones, the brain releases dopamine. It's like the most incredible drug in the world. And that dopamine surge reinforces the behavior that makes you want to repeat it. So that's how a lot of us 
get out of control with our eating. That's how a lot of us get out of control by doing anything to maybe an excessive level because that dopamine surge is crazy good. And dopamine is often associated with addiction. But I guess here in just a little tiny way to think about the dopamine thing, the connection to dopamine, you, me, everybody, Mother Nature teaches us that to get satisfaction and to keep it, you need to have more. And that's kind of where that dopamine signal thing comes in. But that's really the wrong model. You can't keep chasing more. Your real satisfaction is all the things you have divided by all the things that you want. It's a pretty easy mathematical formula. It's just a little bit different than usual. So, you can try to increase your satisfaction permanently by having more, or more realistically, you can work on the denominator of haves divided by wants. You can work on wanting less. That is what turns out to be the right formula. Another one of the questions I got was, so Matthew, how do I practice gratitude when all I feel is sadness, frustration, and confusion? And I think that that question came in because I had talked about my anxiety and depression right after the COVID shit show happened because it ruined my 16-year business, which was very successful. I was running Hawaii food tours. One side of my mouth was talking about practicing gratitude. And yet, you know, I have a lot of sadness and frustration and confusion inside. And so I'm trying to help others with overcoming that if at all possible. What I've decided was deciding to be grateful is really the bottom line. It is in no way BS. The brain is kind of divided into three parts without getting too technical. It's not exactly this way, but just for reference sake, there's that ancient part of our brain that has all of our motor functions and breathing and brain stem and spinal column stuff going on. It's the involuntary things that just gets taken care of. Then there's that middle part of the brain, which is what they call the limbic system. And that takes signals from the outside world and kind of turns those signals, which is sort of a machine language, and turns it into feelings that happen to us. The feelings that we feel because stuff's going on and we feel like things happen to us, that life happens to us. And then from there, it delivers those signals into another part of the brain, the neocortex, the wrinkly part on the outside of the brain, which is the most evolved and amazingly human part of the brain. It's interesting. It's located behind the forehead. You know, that's where a lot of people get, when they get headaches, they complain about the pain right behind their eyes. And so that's that part of the, the brain. It's the neocortex. And it's quite possible that migraine headaches and so on and stress kind of wells up in that area. And it gets these emotions. And you decide what they mean because you have all those feelings that just came in and what you're supposed to do about those feelings. Now, a lot of people go through life in, in just kind of a limbic state, being delivered all of those emotions. And if you're that sort of person, the limbic type of person, feeling like you're being managed by those feelings, kind of hoping for the best, flying by the seat of your pants, then your limbic system is in charge, not you. That's not your only option, though. You can be in charge of yourself, 
But what you have to do is experience your emotions in the prefrontal cortex of your brain. And that can be a very simple process if you put your mind to it. So there's definitely something to be said about putting your mind to it. Okay? It's not BS in any way. What it's called is metacognition. And you probably have heard that word. Metacognition means being aware of your emotions and your thinking. Some people call it mindfulness or wakeful tranquility, which I really like. Uh, This is what humans are uniquely available to do. We are very, very special. Now, for instance, my cat, Smudgy, she's not metacognitive. She can't really be. If she feels it, she does it. When she sees the treat, she eats the treat. And by the way, if I see the treat, I'm going to eat the treat also. But I can actually deliver that information to my prefrontal cortex part of my brain and make an executive decision about what I'm going to do. This is called reasoning. Now, notwithstanding my feelings, of course. So it's really important to take a look at that stuff. So this is what I ask my friends, and I do it for myself as well. So friends, family, clients, friends, listen. I suggest you try to make a gratitude list on Sunday nights. After the end of your week, the beginning of the new week, make a gratitude list on Sundays. Make a list of five of the things that you're most grateful for. And then every night during the rest of the week, take maybe five minutes and look at that list. And then each Sunday for 10 weeks, update your list. After those 10 weeks are finished, you're going to be somewhere between 15 and 25% happier because you decided to be grateful. You decided to pay attention to the things that bring you gratitude. You managed your own emotions so they didn't manage you. And if you do that, that's really, really a game changer. Being in charge, you'll never be the same again. Being in charge, you're never going to have to rely on the limbic system to deal out those issues and those feelings, and you you don't have to try to make sense of it. Because now, by updating a list of your gratitude and looking at it each day for a couple of minutes, once you're in charge, you're never going to be the same. And that's a good thing. Another question that came in on email. So, Matthew, tell me, what is the true meaning of happiness? Wow. Okay. In my mind, happiness is actually a combination of three identifiable things that we all need and we all want, but we need it in balance and abundance. So these, once again, using the food metaphor and the diet metaphor, these are the macronutrients of happiness. The macronutrients in food is protein, fat, and carbs. And those are the things that we need. Happiness is divided into the three areas that I call enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Enjoyment is not just pleasure. It's pleasure with consciousness. Do you understand? Enjoyment is not just pleasure. It's pleasure with consciousness. It's you being aware. And that's by using your prefrontal cortex of your brain. Satisfaction is the joy that you get from a job well done. It's your reward for striving for working, and even suffering. Yeah, there's a benefit to even suffering in our lives. You know, if you don't fail, you'll never really know true success. And if you don't fail, it's just not a realistic scenario. We need the reward. We need to strive. We need to work. Suffering is going to happen. We need to have that gratitude and think about it. 
Now, purpose is a part of this, and that's really a question of finding coherence in your life, finding goals in your life, if at all possible, trying to find significance. If you have those things, you have happiness. Another question to ask is, is happiness connected to having a purpose? Well, purpose is literally one of the macronutrients of happiness I spoke about a moment ago, remember? I said happiness is enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose, right? So because purpose is literally one of the macronutrients of happiness, it's important to know that, but it's a weird one. It's actually hard to figure out even what it is. If you're feeling like life doesn't have enough purpose, that life doesn't have enough meaning, answer the following two questions and be really honest with yourself. Why am I alive? And for what reason would I be willing to die? If you don't have an answer to one or both of these questions, you're going to have an existential crisis. And you need to go in search with your life of an answer to those two questions. I'm not going to tell you what those answers are because they're different for different people. So yes, purpose does lead to happiness. Oh yeah, for sure. So how do you find your purpose? Answer those two questions. Why am I alive? And for what reason would I be willing to die? If you answer those two questions, you'll find the answer to those two questions and you'll know. And that's your assignment. Another person asked me, what is social media and can it cause depression? Well, the what is part, I'm not certain about. Can it cause depression? Yes, so it seems. Absolutely. Here's the bottom line. Although we're all connected to our devices and it's constant and these past 20 years have changed life since before then. Uh, I remember back in the days when I'd sit face to face across the table with my friends and my guests, my family and my loved ones, and we'd sit and we'd talk and we eat and we drink and we cry and we do stuff face to face, eyeball to eyeball. But now, all these years later, and it's not going to end unless we make a conscious effort, is that social media is kind of like the junk food of social life. High calories, very low nutrition. You're starving for this other brain chemical called oxytocin. Oxytocin is what bonds people together. You get almost none of it when you don't have touch and eye contact. Do you know, remember the old days when we used to have touch and we used to hug and shake hands. What happened to us is that the oxytocin was created by our brains, but now because of social media, it's diminishing so much. The lack of social contact, when you've been on social media for so long, you binge it because it's basically like binging French fries and then wondering why you feel crummy and you feel like shit and you're gaining weight, but you're not getting your nutrition. You feel full, but you don't feel satisfied. So here's the deal. If you're going to use social media, try to make sure that it only ever complements your in-person relationships and use it very sparingly if you can. I'm talking about maybe a total of 30 to 60 minutes a day maximum across all the platforms and never, ever, ever substitute social media for an in-person contact or friendship. If it substitutes for any friendship or goes outside those bounds, social media is going to kick your ass and lower your happiness level. So we got to get back with it. We got to get back into face-to-face -face contact with people, if at all possible. 
It's not so much what we're consuming when we're on social. It's the fact that we're not consuming that face-to-face, in-the-flesh, human contact that the herd animal in us relied upon for millions of years. So yeah, social media is dangerous, let me tell you. Another question that came in recently was, Matthew, how does age affect happiness? Well, this is good. I can, I can speak to this because I'm aged now. I used to be, I remember one part of my life where I was always the youngest person in the room. And then for a short period of time, there was a time when I was about the same age as everyone else. But now, a lot of times when I'm in a room, I'm one of the older people there. So this is going to happen to you too, God willing. What do you think is going to happen if, let's say, you're in your late 20s? Are you going to be happier or unhappier in 10 years? What do you think? Now, most people listening to me right now are optimists. I know this. And most people think they're going to be happier at 38 than they were at 28. And the reason is because these these things have goals. And they think they're going to meet their goals. And so when you when you kind of project outward, you think, oh, things are going to be better in 10 years. And most people think they're going to get happier as they get older. And it's going to reach a max point. And then it's going to head back down again. You know, everyone says, well, it's all downhill from here. You know, when you turn 30, there's a little bit of a depression thing where it's all downhill. You reach 40 and you're starting to feel ancient. You go, it's all downhill from there. But you know what? The truth is exactly the opposite. Most people on average get a slight diminution of their happiness from their early 20s until their late 40s or 50s or so on. The happiness level for them seems like it goes down a little bit and it's totally connected to their age. But you know what? It's like, that's what's happening. This is not really a huge problem. It's noticeable, but it's not horrible. Then in your early 50s, it turns around and you start back up again. And almost everybody actually gets increasing happiness from their early 50s until about 70, except two groups of people people who have unremediated mental illness, and people who have untreated substance abuse disorders. So friends, if this is you, get treated for your anxiety and depression and whatever mood disorders you might have. And if you have any addictions, you should get treated for that. Otherwise, how do we adjust our expectations as we age? Now, that's a good one. That's a good question. And it definitely ties in with what I was just saying. One of the things that actually gets better and better and better as you age is your expectations about the future because you begin to understand how things work. There's this tyranny that people don't understand until they're usually right around 50 years old. They think that if they get that thing that they want, remember I was talking about the Rolex or the car or the job, the big paying job or the whatever it might be, that they'll get that and they're going to totally enjoy it. And and then it's never going to go away. That, that feeling is never, ever going to go away because they finally got what they wanted. But then, as I mentioned earlier, it does go away. Having stuff is not the answer. People also think that if something bad happens to them, that they're going to stay in a bad mood or sad or angry or afraid forever. And that's not the case either. Here's what you learn after 50. Nothing lasts and it doesn't matter. Isn't that kind of a peaceful way to look at it? Nothing lasts and it doesn't matter. There's a thing that a lot of biologists talk about, which is homeostasis. You've heard the word homeostasis, which is 
the tendency of every biological process to go back to its equilibrium. That means that uh, it's kind of our normal state of life and living. Well, that works on an emotional level as well. If you have anger, sadness, disgust, fear, joy, your interests, those things don't last for good and for bad. Your heart is broken. Well, that's not going to last. When you figure this out, this is power. And if you harness that, every year's better than the last, or it can be. Remember, you've been able to overcome everything. You've been able to overcome sadness, depression, the great job, the great relationship. At one point or another, these things are going to change. And so you have to kind of roll with the flow. So we need to be working on being present at all times. And to be present means to be here now. And that sounds like like an artsy-fartsy, ancient kind of hippy-dippy way of saying stuff. But those words are the words that Ram Das used to talk about in the 70s. We have a special kind of language that we put on that now. It's called being mindful. Mindfulness is hard because we're time travelers, each and every one of us. You're thinking about the past. You're thinking about the future. The average person, by the way, spends 30 to 50% of their time thinking about the future. That's unbelievable to me. You're not here now. You need to be here now. Think about how much you do that, by the way. You go on vacation. You're like, oh, I'm going to make some memories. So I'm going to take a picture. And out comes the camera, your cell phone, your freaking device. Picture, 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 picture. You're looking at the world through your device. You're thinking about now as if it were the past in the future when you're looking back on the present. (laughs) That's unbelievable time travel. We do it all the time. Here's the problem. You're missing your life. You missed it. When you look at life through a cell phone camera, and that's the way you're recording your life, you're really not drinking it in. When you're sitting down, you're having a drink or a meal at a table, and you've got this freaking device at the end of your arm, instead of looking into the eyes of your guests, your friends, your family, your loved ones, your spouse. Don't miss your life. Be present. You know, there was a great Vietnamese Buddhist monk, and earlier I was talking about wakeful tranquility, and wakeful tranquility is something that comes from Buddhism. This great Vietnamese Buddhist monk, I'm going to butcher his name, it was something like Thich Nhat Han, something along those lines, very close to that. I, forgive me. You'll have to read The Miracle of Mindfulness because it starts off with him describing what it's like to wash dishes something that most people have no idea what the freaking thing that is. They but they just put everything into their dishwasher, right? Here he is describing what it's like to wash dishes. I'm washing the dishes and I'm conscious of washing the dishes because if I don't think about washing the dishes, I will not be present in the act of washing the dishes. Now, some of you are laughing right now, like, like yeah, uh, I don't really think I need to be present while washing the dishes. Wrong. That's being a mind traveler. That's being a time traveler. You need to be conscious of washing the dishes. Because if I don't think about washing the dishes, I won't be present in the act of washing the dishes. That means working on being a mindful person. You need to work on being a mindful person. Maybe it's with meditation, like my dear friend and mentor Michael Benner talks about. Maybe it's with prayer. A lot of you believe in prayer. Maybe it's by way of therapy and sitting with your hands folded on your lap, looking out the window on the train. 
Who knows? It comes in so many different forms. You can be present in every different form of your life. For instance, I'm sitting on the train right now because I don't want to miss my life. Another question came in from uh, the show that I was on recently. It was, Matthew, what is your definition of wisdom? Well, there are certain kinds of scientists, psychometricians, who study different forms of intelligence. And they find that we have a thing called fluid intelligence very early on in our lives. In our 20s and 30s, our ability to focus, to innovate, to solve problems, and to think quickly are right there at the forefront. People tend to peak in knowledge professions at their ability to solve problems, to innovate, focus, working memory, things like that in their late 30s. So all of that stuff's happening in your 30s. But there's another curve behind it called crystallized intelligence. And that's for a lot of people who are listening right now. And that increases through your 40s, 50s, 60s, and stays high even in your 70s and 80s. This is the wisdom curve. The essence of wisdom is teaching. It's mentoring. It's when you get into a stage of life where you want to pay it forward. I happen to be there now, not because I don't want to be doing the stuff I used to do, but it just feels like that's where I'm at right now. I want to be able to pay it forward. I want to be able to be a teacher and a mentor even more than I used to be. When you get a little bit older, you want to lead teams. You're able to recognize patterns. It's understanding what things really mean and using that information in service of other people. And it gets better. And if you choose to cultivate it, it makes your life as happy as it could possibly be as you get older. And that's not the only consolation of age. That's the promise of wisdom. And that's what's happening. When you get older, you're not losing stuff. You're gaining wisdom. So here's the key thing. If you really want to lock it in, here's the secret. You got to think about it and you got to adapt new habits in your life. And most of all, here's the most important part. You got to share it. Go out there and share it with everybody and then you'll never lose it. Share it with friends, share it with family, share it with passersby. If you have new habits in your life, think about it, be present, adopt new habits and share it. That's the key. And that's what I think is going to either increase your happiness levels or decrease your unhappiness levels. And I thank you for listening today. This is Matthew Gray signing off from 50 Tastes of Gray. I wish you love and peace. Tune into my show anytime you want at lovelife.com. Aloha.